Chapter 23 of The Romance of Modern Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Krista Zaleski. The Romance of Modern Astronomy by Hector McPherson. Chapter 23 The Galaxy. When we turn our eyes to the heavens on any clear moonless night, we cannot but be impressed with the majestic stream of milky light which spans the heavens like a mighty arch. This is the Milky Way, or galaxy, the ground plan of the stars. The galaxy traverses the constellations Scorpio, Sagittarius, Aquila, Cygnus, Cepheus, Cassiopeia, Perseus, Origa, Gemini, Canis Major, Monoceros, Argo, Crua, Era, and Centaurus. It has been known from the earliest ages, and many speculations as to its true nature were made by the ancient Greeks. In the opinion of Aristotle, the galaxy was due to atmospheric vapors, while Anaxagoras held the absurd opinion that it was the shadow of the earth. Several acute thinkers among the Greeks, however, were of the opinion that the galaxy was nothing more than a collection of very faint stars, too faint to be separately seen. When Galileo turned his newly invented telescope to the heavens, this theory was at once found to be the true one. For centuries the galaxy has arrested the attention not only of men of science, but of all thoughtful observers of the heavens, and it is referred to by many of the poets. Wordsworth calls it, Heaven's broad causeway paved with stars. And Milton's beautiful description of it is not only poetic, but scientific. A broad and ample road whose dust is gold, the pavement stars as stars to thee appear. Seen in the galaxy that milky way, which nightly as a circling zone thou seest, powdered with stars. This broad and ample road was specially studied by Galileo, but of course his telescope was far too small to resolve the galaxy into stars. There were parts of the galaxy, writes Mr. Peck, that Galileo's telescope utterly failed to penetrate, and there still remained in the background the same misty light which had for so many centuries engaged the attention of astronomers. With every increase of telescopic power, more stars were seen, and greater depths were reached, but only to find, as Galileo had found, that some parts would require a more powerful instrument to reveal the individual stars that by being crowded so closely together caused this cloudy light. And even when Sir William Herschel applied his powerful reflectors to this part of the heavens, and reached still farther depths, there was yet to be seen that same milky light which speaks of the myriads of stars to be revealed. Nay, even Lord Ross, with his gigantic telescope, could not resolve some of the luminous patches scattered throughout the Milky Way. Since the time of Lord Ross, photography has been applied to the galaxy with striking success by three distinguished photographers of the sky, Professor Max Wolfe, Professor Bernard, and the late Dr. Isaac Roberts. These astronomers have shown the constitution of the Milky Way to be exceedingly complex. The stars are, in many cases, intermixed with nebulous matter. Another remarkable feature of the galaxy is the presence in it of rifts and chasms. There is, for instance, a typical chasm in the southern Milky Way known as the coal sack, and there are many others. Dr. Wolfe's remarkable series of photographs, too, revealed many smaller rifts which were previously unknown. 
Through these rifts, we evidently get a view into the depths of space beyond the galaxy, into the region which has been designated the darkness behind the stars. Another remarkable feature of the galaxy is the existence of streams of stars. In Cygnus, close to the star Deneb or Alpha Cygni, there is a typical instance of a star stream, which may be observed with a binocular. Many others of these are to be seen in the galaxy, stars obviously connected, which may yet be separated by enormous distances. Let us consider what streams of suns are. They are aggregations of vast orbs, some larger and some smaller than the mighty sun. Each of them possibly the center of a system of planets, abodes probably of human life. It is difficult to conceive of the utter insignificance of our planet, indeed of our sun and solar system, compared with these mighty star streams. Seen from these orbs, the sun itself, if visible at all, will be seen as a faint little star, and the earth and planets, of course, will be totally invisible. If the sun were to be suddenly extinguished, the consequences would be very serious so far as our world and the other planets were concerned. All life would disappear from the surface of the earth, which would move through space as a dead world. But the extinction of the sun, with the consequent destruction of the human race, would be absolutely unimportant, if not unknown, to the universe at large. As Sir Robert Ball has expressed it, all the stars of heaven would continue to shine as before. Not a point in one of the constellations would be altered, not a variation in the brightness, not a change in the hue of any star could be noticed. The thousands of nebulae and clusters would be absolutely unaltered. In fact, the total extinction of the sun would hardly be remarked in the newspapers published in the Pleiades or in Orion. There might possibly be a little line somewhere in an odd corner to the effect, Mr. So-and-so, our well-known astronomer, has noticed that a tiny star, inconspicuous to the eye, and absolutely of no importance whatever, has now become invisible. The galaxy is no mere isolated phenomena in the heavens. It is the ground plan of the universe. It was shown by Herschel a hundred years ago that there are more stars in the regions of the heavens near to the Milky Way than in the opposite regions. In other words, the stars increase up to the galaxy, which seems to be a region of stellar clustering. It has been shown by Professor Schiaparelli and the late Mr. Proctor that the stars visible to the unaided eye are more numerous on and near the galaxy, as well as the telescopic stars. What light does this throw on the great question of the construction of the universe, of the relation of the entire number of stars which are to be seen with the most powerful telescope to one another, and to the galaxy itself? The prevailing idea seems to be that the entire agglomeration of stars visible to the most powerful telescopes, known as the stellar universe, forms a globe of stars, and that the galaxy forms an equatorial zone of that globe, that there is greater clustering, that is to say, that the stars are closer together in the galaxy than elsewhere in the universe. At the same time, there may be a greater extension of stars in the line of our vision in the direction of the galaxy. Although the above seems a fairly good outline of the entire universe of stars, there are a number of local peculiarities among the stars. For instance, as already mentioned, stars of the first or white type are the most prevalent on or near the galaxy. The investigations of Dr. Kepton, a distinguished Dutch astronomer, have disclosed the fact that near the vicinity of our Sun contains almost exclusively stars of the solar or yellow type, the same class as our own Sun. Another remarkable fact is that the stars in the constellation Orion have, with the exception of Betelgeuse, 
similar spectra, and that these stars are closely intermixed with the great nebulae. Professor Capeton's studies have also told us of the possible existence of two great streams of stars moving in opposite directions. These facts are all very disconnected, but the reason of their disconnection is that astronomers have not yet learned enough of the stellar universe and of its dominant feature, the galaxy, to form a complete theory of its constitution. As Mr. Gore has well remarked, the Copernicus of the sidereal system has not yet arrived, and it may be many years or even centuries before this great problem is satisfactorily solved. One point in connection with the system of the stars, however, is tolerably certain. The collection of orbs, which we call the universe of stars, is limited in extent. Probably space is infinite, but the number of stars in the stellar system is not infinite. There may be 500 million or more, but they cannot be infinite in number. There is a well-known law of optics which shows that if the stars were infinite in number, the whole sky would shine with the brightness of the sun as a result of the blazing of an infinite number of suns extending to an infinite distance. In some parts of the heavens, too, the limits of the universe seem to have been reached. For instance, at a part of the sky diametrically opposite to the Milky Way, Sir William Herschel with his mighty telescope saw a certain number of stars. An Italian observer, Professor Caloria, using quite a small instrument, saw exactly the same number of stars. This showed that Herschel's telescope was unable to show any more stars in that direction than the little instrument of Caloria, because the stars in that part of the universe have a definite limit. At the same time, its diameter is almost unthinkable. Even on the most moderate estimate, the universe extends undoubtedly to an enormous distance, a distance which we can only estimate and which we are unable to conceive. Yet it is limited in extent. But what, after all, is the stellar universe? It is not the universe. It is merely one of a number of similar systems scattered throughout space. We have never seen such systems, nor can we expect to see them. When astronomers are still unable completely to pierce through our own stellar systems, it would be futile to expect to catch a glimpse of another system. Reasoning, however, from first principles, astronomers are on the whole inclined to believe in the existence of other systems, external universes. Mr. Gore has made a calculation of the possible distance of one of these external universes. Assuming that the distance of the nearest of these systems is proportionate to that separating our system from Alpha Centauri, he reaches the astounding conclusion that the distance of the nearest of these external universes is no less than 520 sextillion 149 quintillion 600 quadrillion miles. This is, of course, pure speculation. The external universe, if it exists, as it probably does, may be at a great distance, but it is most unlikely to be any nearer. Our minds are overwhelmed with the thoughts suggested by this calculation. We cannot fully comprehend the extent of the system of stars. Still less can we conceive of an external system. Mr. Gore, overwhelmed with the marvels disclosed in this calculation, with the revelation of infinity which astronomy gives us, closes his investigations with the following beautiful thought. The numbers of stars and systems really existing, but invisible to us, may be practically infinite. Could we speed our flight through space on angel wings, beyond the confines of our limited universe, to a distance so great that the interval which separates us from the remotest fixed star might be considered as merely a step on our celestial journey? 
what further creations might not then be revealed to our wondering vision? Systems of a higher order might then be unfolded to our view, compared with which the whole of our visible heavens might appear like a grain of sand on the ocean shore. Systems perhaps stretching to infinity before us, and reaching at last the glorious mansions of the Almighty, the throne of the Eternal. End of chapter 23